0: turning finally to our sermon passage, which is Genesis 26. Uh, there's also a sermon notes page there in the bulletin. I mentioned last Sunday that uh, the passage is printed out there, especially for kids, so they can uh, quickly find where we, where we are at. If uh, we're t- flipping around in the Bible, uh, just easy for them to reference that. So the first page there has the passage, kids, you want to take some notes and, and uh, be able to have it just right in front of you uh, for easy uh, seeing. So Genesis chapter 26, let's pick up and begin reading at verse 1. We're going to read uh, down through verse number 33. Uh, Now there was a famine in the lands, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. We saw that back in chapter number 12. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands that I establish, that I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us. For you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the name that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, "'The water is ours!' So we called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless and multiply you, uh, your offspring, for my servant Abraham's sake. So he, Isaac, built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with uh, Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, uh, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let, it, let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace." You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Be'er, Sheba, to this day. And all of God's people say, Amen. We've seen so far that the narrative, the story of uh, Abraham is a story of the life of faith. And so it emphasized to us that uh, wonderful virtue of faith uh, in all of its ups and downs, in all of its uh, blessings, all of its struggles, uh, all of the the, the triumphs of Abraham's faith, also uh, the downs, the struggles, the tragedies, we might say, of his faith as well. Uh, the narrative of Isaac and Jacob uh, in Genesis 26, as we pick up here this morning and we go on into chapter 30, uh, through chapter 36, uh, emphasizes another aspect uh, of the believer's life, which is experiencing and knowing the grace of God. Especially here we see in uh, not just the life of Isaac, because he's sort of a transitional figure in the story, uh, but Jacob, uh, we see the overwhelming nature of God's grace to worthless, unworthy sinners like you and me, uh, like Jacob. One writer described Isaac because he sort of has passed over in the story. There's not uh, a whole lot of emphasis on him as there was on, uh, on, on Abraham or there is uh, on Jacob to come. Uh, one writer described him as the ordinary son of a great father, that is, Abraham. Uh, and he's also the ordinary father. Of a great son, that is Jacob. And so we come to our passage here, and and you can get a sense and get a hint there of something that we've seen already before. And back in chapter 12, with Abraham, with the famine, with uh, his wife, and with uh, living amongst unbelievers and the struggle that that brings uh, to faith. And then also, there's that covenant, that pact, that treaty that they make together. Uh, And so on the one hand, uh, I I thought about in the sermon, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, because that's kind of what we see here. Uh, We we see in chapter 26 the similarities between uh, Isaac and Abraham. Abraham like the tree, and Isaac like an apple. Uh, They both experience a famine. They both hear the promises of God in that famine. They both lived among their unbelieving neighbors amidst famine, and they both made a covenant with unbelievers, Amidst that famine. So the apple didn't far fall or doesn't fall far from the tree, as we sometimes say about even our own kids this morning. But yet the story is about grace. It's not a story just about Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, but it's a story about God. And so we have here grace. While there's this great connection between these two figures of Abraham and Isaac, chapter 12, and now chapter number number uh, twenty-six. Uh, there's something more. Uh, God's word is, as uh, Hebrews tells us, living and active. Living and active. God is at work here. God is at work through his word, through his promises, in the life of Isaac and uh, eventually in the life of his son Jacob. Now, this is a story about God. It's a story about his grace. It's a story about the grace that comes upon grace. As, as John tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 1, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, We've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. Overwhelming sense, an overwhelming experience of grace. And we see that here, this, this, the superabounding grace of God, despite our sin, despite our doubts, despite our rebellion, despite everything that we are in comparison to uh uh, to god god shows his grace even more so to isaac just like he does and he's already done and he will do continually for you and for me god is a god of grace amen god's a god of grace this is a story of that grace and so just want to note here uh that grace that god Uh, uh, confirms here notice he also in grace confounds we'll see and also finally uh, in his grace he convicts and so just notice there the sermon outline if you have that uh, out in front of you on the back side of that first of all there's a grace of God here that confirms and you see that in the first couple of verses especially now there was a famine in the land just as there had been in the days of Abraham and so our minds are thrust back to chapter 12 uh, as Abram was called out of Ur the Chaldeans, and then, uh, and then there was a famine, and he was, he was uh, uh, led down into the land of Egypt, uh, and this time Isaac begins his journey down to the land of the Philistines on the southwest coast of Canaan, uh, just north of Egypt. Yet, with Isaac, the Lord intervenes. Verse 2, notice, it tells us that the Lord appeared. The Lord appeared. And it's speaking of what we've already seen multiple times. When the Lord appears, we have a sort of a fancy theological term to describe that appearance of God. you guys remember that that, that term that we use for that? What does it mean? Uh, What's the word that we use to describe God appearing? A theophany. Good. A theophany, right? An, An appearance of God, a revelation, a manifestation, an unveiling of God, a making visible, in some sense, in some way, God. And we've seen throughout uh, Genesis so far that when God makes Himself visible in, in a theophany, sometimes he does so in cloud and smoke and fire. That's chapter 15, where we saw that that uh, that image in Abraham's dream at night of a smoking firepot and a flaming torch that appeared to Father Abraham and that smoke and fire spoke, "I am God Almighty. But God also appeared to Abraham in chapter 18 as a man, as a man. and, and uh, angels even uh, appeared as men as well. And so here again, the Lord appears. the Lord appears in some some way, we're not told exactly what that looked like. Uh, We also saw before with Abraham that sometimes God appeared, but his appearance was was in words. But yet that was also called an appearance of God. And so God appears. God arrives. There's a theophany here. And so he calls upon Isaac, notice here, to dwell. Don't go down. Dwell in the land, he says. Dwell there in the land. Uh, This is the word that eventually gets used in uh, uh, in Exodus for the tabernacle. God's dwelling among men in a tent as they lived in tents. God also lived in a tent. And so he tells him to dwell, to, to stay, to, to live in a tent temporarily here uh, in this land. Uh, and he also tells him to sojourn, which is later on also used in Exodus. It's the word that describes the Israelites being aliens and foreigners and strangers in a land that was not their own. So there's a famine here. Isaac's commanded to stay amidst these unbelievers uh, besides the fact that he didn't find a wife until he was 40 and uh, she didn't bear him a son we saw last uh, Sunday until she was 60. It begins to feel like and it begins to, to uh, give us the sense as if the Lord was against Isaac and not for him. He takes a wife at forty. Has to wait 20 long, hard years, and he persevered in prayer, we saw last Sunday, until he was 60. And then we read a story about this famine in the land. Now, I mentioned before that uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, there are the, the, the stories, as we read them sort of chronologically, chapter to chapter, we think of them chronologically. We think that uh, one chapter happened, and then the next chapter happened a little bit later after that. Uh, in fact, this is an uh, anachronist story, uh, this chapter twenty six. Uh, If they had already had Jacob and Esau as children, it would have been obvious that Isaac was married to Rebekah, and he wouldn't have to lie about it. And they would have known the obvious. They would have seen children with them going into the land. And so this happened sometime between uh, 40 years old, Isaac being 40 years old, and Isaac being 60 years old. This happened somewhere in between uh, those 20 years of persevering prayer that we saw uh, last Sunday. And so, but it feels, the big idea here is that it feels like God is against. 20 years with no child, now a famine, what gives? But God's. what gives is God's right? Here is God in his grace, and his grace to confirm what he's already promised is here. And we hear these amazing gospel promises, these, this, this good news in verses 3, and 4 uh, look at there at verse 3 and 4 and and just listen to the way that God speaks I will be with you I will bless you I will give all these lands I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven I will give your offspring all these lands and so forth The Lord in his grace confirms that Isaac is, yes, his chosen vessel. Yes, he had to wait 20 years to have that first child, that child of promise. And yes, now he has to experience famine. And yes, now he has to live amongst unbelievers. But it's God in his grace that comes to confirm that through him all the nations would be blessed. Now, what do you notice in verses 3 and 4 about the way God speaks? What does God say? There's all these blessings, but who gives them all? And what's the, how does God speak? What's what's the way that God speaks there? What's the word that you see there? That little single letter every time pops up, doesn't it? I, right? I will be with you, right? I will bless you. It's God. It's God who is the one who speaks. It's God as one who is the one who confirms in his grace. And so notice something about his grace here as he's already blessed Abram. He's already blessed him with promises and children and now eventually grandchildren, uh, the stars and the sand and so forth. That same God, that same grace is now here confirmed to Isaac. And the grace of God is God personally, notice, he's personally appearing to personally apply to particular persons, a person, Isaac, the things that he's already promised. I say that because sometimes we think about God's grace as, as God's grace is something that, that is over there and that God himself is something that's over in there. In another over there. Grace is here, God is over there. And we can even think sometimes of grace uh, as, 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 as stuff or as something that we talk about God gives grace. And we divorce, we detach God from his grace. In fact, though, what we're seeing here is that God appears, and when God speaks, I will do these things, he appears to confirm those promises of his grace, we see that what his grace is, is his own personal presence to be favorable towards, to save sinners, despite they are not earning or deserving it. What is grace? Well, God is gracious, isn't he? God is merciful. God is love. And as I've mentioned before, in our theological way of describing God, God is not divided up into all these various little attributes. All those attributes are manifestations of of all that God is. I will be with you. And we experience that, Isaac experiences that, as grace. As the undeserved personal favor of the Lord to uphold him and to bless him and to continue to be with him. One one of our hymns says it like this Amid the conflict, O my Lord, thy precious promise, let me hear. The faithful, reassuring word, I am thy savior, do not fear. The promise that we want to hear, that's that hymn says, the promise that we want to hear is God's own word. I am thy Savior. Do not fear. We're so prone to think that God is far from us because our experience of trials, such as famine. We think God's distant from us. We think that he's not with us. We think that he's not for us because of a famine, for example, here. But what God is showing Isaac, and that what we need to learn too, is that It's in the situations of famine that the Lord, we might say in human speak, is actually nearer to us. He's actually nearer to us in times of famine and times of struggle, times of doubt, times of persecution. In the midst of famine and living among the ungodly world here, the Philistines, the Lord says to our forefather, I'm with you. I'm with you. Didn't Jesus say the same thing to us? And lo, I am with you always till the end of the age. Didn't Jesus promise us that? The same God who is with here in grace to confirm his promises to to Abraham's son, Isaac, the same Savior, the same God, the same Lord who is present with us the same god is with us notice His grace then confirms His grace confirms to isaac all that he's already promised but he makes it real right personal god's personal presence to personally apply to a particular person all that he is for them it's the same with us the lord is with us by the power of his holy spirit Notice his grace also then, secondly, confound. So he comes to Isaac, he reveals himself in this theophany to Isaac to confirm what is already said uh, in his amazing grace and in his mercy. And there he is in this famine, this region wide famine. And look what verse thirteen says. Just skip down to verse thirteen. So, God is with Isaac in grace, in his grace, and he's in this region and he's amongst these unbelievers, and then he sows in the land. He takes seeds, right, and he plants seeds in a field somewhere, and he reaps in the same year. How much did he reap? How much did he reap? A hundredfold. Why? There's a famine. There's a famine. That's why he has to travel southwest to go find a place for shelter and food and water and provision for his, all of his flocks and herds and servants and family, his wife. So he sows. Everyone else is sowing, but they're getting nothing. He sows. He gets a hundredfold. Why? What does verse 13 say? Well, I thought it was verse 13. The Lord blessed him. Where's that verse at? (laughs) 12. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I'm looking down at it. I don't see it. Oh, there it is. Verse 12. Yeah, the Lord blessed him. The Lord blessed him. So he receives a blessing because the Lord was with him. Because the Lord was with him. And notice the The envy that leads to, the the Philistines begin to envy him, which led to spites, right? They they begin to cover up all the wells that Abraham's servants had dug and that they no doubt had used and and, and benefited by. They filled them all with dirt. And then Isaac dug a well. And the herdsmen from each side were, were arguing about it. And then he dug another one and they argued again. Yet, no matter what the Philistines threw at him, the Lord still was gracious. He was with Isaac. No matter what they did, no matter how many arguments, no matter how much dirt they used to bury and to fill in those holes, and to muddy that water to make it undrinkable, the Lord was with him. There's a country song that Sadie likes. Uh, and I told her I was going to mention this great lyric this morning, and it's, uh, it's something that we all probably know, we've heard it in some way or another, but uh, there, there's a line in one of the songs uh, that, that we listen to in the radio, uh, and it says, uh, uh, the devil wants to take me out of that church, but you can't take the church out of me. That's something of what we see here. The devil is using these ungodly Philistines and their herds, and, and there's this drama here with the servants, and and the wife, and the, and the calling her the sister, and so forth. And no matter what the Philistines threw at Isaac, the Lord was with him. He was right there. And we, we, we see that all throughout the scriptures. No matter what, God is with his people. We see it all throughout the history of the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 plus years. No matter what the world, no matter what empire, the Lord is with us. We, no doubt, all have testimony in our own lives of this very same thing. No matter what the world, and by the world we mean very, very practically, very personally, right? Family, friends, employers, employees, classmates, whatever, whoever, whenever, whatever the world throws at us, you and I can testify that the Lord has been with us. He's seen us through. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy the church and to use every weapon at his disposal, especially the unbelieving world. But yet he's promised us that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his people. God made Adam, he made Eve, Satan deceived through a serpent. Yet God was gracious, wasn't he, to preserve a people? Cain killed Abel, the son, the brother that that gave a pleasing sacrifice to God. Yet God was gracious in preserving a people, wasn't he? He gave Eve another son, Sam. Satan inspired rulers to rule with iron fists, to live corruptly by taking as many women for wives into their harems as they wanted. This led to all the people to live ungodly lives, bringing God's judgment down in a flood. But was God gracious to the world? When God brought a judgment upon the whole earth, was he also gracious at the same time? How was he gracious? How was he gracious? He saved Noah and his family, right? It was just eight people, but yet he showed his grace in that little family. The earth grew corrupt again, sought to build their own tower into heaven to make a name for themselves, yet God and and God brought judgment. Upon them, he dispersed the peoples across the face of the earth, confused and confounded their languages, yet he preserved the remnant. And out of that remnant, although they worshipped idols, there was still something of that remnant that was preserved, which was Abraham, or April. The list goes on. The list goes on. We you and I can read our Bibles and we can see this principle throughout, that God constantly is preserving by his grace, confounding the world, and it's all of its efforts to end faith. But there's God. And we are testimonies of that today. We are the evidence of that. God's grace confounds the world. It confounds our own sins. It confounds the devil. That's why the ancient dictum of the early Christian church was that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more the Roman Empire slaughtered Christians, their blood was like seed in the ground. And the church eventually, without weapons, destroyed and conquered the Roman Empire. Despite the onslaught of any religion or philosophy or tyrant or ideology, the church of Jesus Christ survives and thrives, spreads. God's grace confounds these unbelievers. They can't believe what is going on. No matter what they do, Isaac survives. Isaac thrives. God's promise continues through him. This is why you and I should be 100% confident in our great God, 100% confident. We read this passage, and I was thinking this week just how much uh, you and I, no doubt uh, speak for myself here, but no doubt uh, you as well, uh, there is so much fear among Christians today, so much fear among us. And we all all get it, right? It's it's a a difficult time for, for Christians to live out their conscience. But yet we should be 100% confident. We see that here. Here's Isaac, and, and yes, he lies about his wife. And here's Isaac struggling in faith, and, but yet God. Here's Isaac trying to give water and, and provision to his family, to his flocks, and so forth. God blesses them, but yet they cover up the wells. They have no water to drink in a famine. you think that would be a necessity to survive, wouldn't it? But God. He digs a well, they fight. He digs a well, they fight. He digs a well. Eventually, he provides. We see here an example of why we should be confident, 100% confident in God. We have nothing to fear. Fear not. The Lord says to him, I am with you. I will bless you for Abraham's sake. No matter the president, no matter the administration, no matter the Congress, no matter the courts, no matter the... Uh, the the regulations, the edicts, the laws, the rulings, God wins. Do you believe that? We should be confident in that. No, that doesn't mean that's easy, does it? Doesn't mean that's easy. We have hard choices to face, and some of us have made those hard choices for jobs and for school and so forth, for our kids and for our families. Yet God is with us. The Lord is present. We, we, should not, we shouldn't fear, because we know the, the Lord is with us. The world might take away a well from us. We might go dig another one. We might take that one away, too. Yet eventually God will give us one, to give us this day our daily bread. Here's Isaac, digging up wells. The world's against him, yet God is, a, is with him. So here we see Grace. This amazing grace that confirms the promise, this amazing grace that confounds the world's chances and, and, and opportunities, to snuff out true faith. And eventually, notice, eventually, we find here a grace that convicts. This grace that convicts, notice, Isaac's unbelieving neighbors. They've tried everything. It hasn't worked. And they come back to him, notice, verse 28, after he's left. They come back and they say, we, we, plainly, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. That's not just like pious church talk. Right? This is not Christianese. These are unbelievers who say things. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you so let's make a pact. You've you've been blessed more than us. Leave, right? This eventually happens to the Israelites in Egypt. They become so numerous, they get kicked out. They're afraid. And then he goes out and they they see the results. The Lord has been with this guy and all that he has. We see plenty of the Lord has been with you. You are now the blessed of the Lord, verse 29. You are now the blessed of the Lord. The grace of God that confirmed the promise to Isaac and upheld him and confounded them now convicts them. Convicts them, notice. And we see something here already in the Old Testament, something of that that amazing promise that God has made to Father Abraham that, that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Coming to fulfillment in some small little way here, at least. We see something of a preview of that great promise that comes to us uh, in the New Testament where Jesus says, Go out, for I am with you, to the close of the age. The grace convicts, in this case, the enemies. Do you believe God is gracious? Do you believe God personally in His presence gives and favors and blesses despite your not deserving it? Do you believe that God is gracious? And we, you know, we, we, we reformed, we Calvinists, right? We, we're supposed to be the people the of the so-called doctrines of grace. Do you believe God is gracious? I mean, we, we, we say, I know we believe, but we say, right? We, we believe that the grace of God is invincible and uh, it's unconquerable. It's irresistible. It's powerful. Strong to say. Do you believe God is gracious? You see, Isaac here, his response to this amazing grace of God his response there, is, as he leaves, back in verse 23 there, and God appears to him and, again, confirms these amazing promises. I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. I'm with you. I will bless you, and so forth. Notice his response there in verse 25. He, he builds an altar there. He calls upon the name of the Lord. Then he pitches a tent. And then his servants dig another well. He responds to God's grace by serving God, by worshiping first and foremost, building an altar, praying, and then dwelling in a land that's not his own, knowing that God is with him. Digging a well, trusting that God is going to direct those uh, those shovels, we might say, into a place that brings water. Trusting God to provide there in the desert. He believed in God's grace. He trusted God in his grace. It wasn't perfect, but he did. He trusted God in his grace. And so do you, do you, you and I trust in the grace of God. Not just the grace to save us from our personal particular sins, but his grace in all ways. If you and I believe in the grace of God and we we look at this passage here, we see the grace of God to Isaac and we see that grace continues through the Lord Jesus Christ to us, to the church of Jesus Christ in general, let us pray like it. If we believe that God and his grace is so great, let's pray like it. His grace confirms, confirms all that God says. Build an altar, Pray. If we believe in the grace of God, let's pray like it. His grace confirms all that he says to us. God, you've promised. You've promised me that my God and the God of my children, you've promised to give this day our daily bread, you've promised never to leave us nor forsake us, and the list goes on. Pray like it. Pray like it. Trust those promises. Tell God those promises. Remind yourself of those promises. Pray like it. If you and I believe and trust and, 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 and embrace the grace of Almighty God. Let's be confident in His grace. His grace not only confirms, but it, as we've seen, confounds. Confounds. Be confident. When you get notifications on your phone, when you turn on the news at night, when you click on uh, whatever website you read the news, be confident in the grace of God more than that stuff. The grace of God confounds the world. It may not see, seem like it, or look like it, or feel like it, or sound like it now, but the grace of God confounds. I mean, we just sang this morning about Jesus being king. Didn't we? Remember, I asked the kids, you know, what is that, who's that psalm talking about in Psalm 21? It's singing about Jesus. But we read the news, we listen to whatever pundits and so forth, and we, and we get gloomy and we get glum and, and, we, and we don't believe that Jesus Christ reigns. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? It's never been this bad. I don't know, we have, we have a king upon a throne that can't, he can't be toppled. That's kind of a good news, isn't it? Kind of a good news. Again, it doesn't mean it's easy, but we have a king. And by his grace, he confounds the world's wisdom in his time and his plan. And so, if we believe in the grace of God, that God is gracious, personally present with the church, with you and me today, and in us and our families throughout this very coming week, let's pray like it, let's be confident in it, and let's live like it. Because his grace convicts. So Jesus tells us to go out and do good works, so that the, the world will see those deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Well, I'm just a mom, or I'm just a dad, or I you know I just work in an office. You know, I, I just sit, I, I just sit uh, you know in an office all, all uh, for for a whole shift, and I just you know monitor things. You know, what does my work have to do with Jesus? I'm just a kid. I'm just a student. Whatever it is, live like the grace of God matters. People will see that. Here's Isaac, and you know, just like you and me, he's a sinner. He, he lies. He deceives. Right? He's afraid. He was afraid. He even admits that I was afraid. Yet God used him. If God can use this guy, he can use you and me. Right? God is gracious. God is gracious. That's the big idea here. Let's trust his grace. Let's believe his grace. If you're here today, you've never never given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never experienced his amazing grace. That he receives sinners. He welcomes sinners. He loves sinners. He forgives sinners. This is what he says. And this story is just one example of 100,000 million examples of his amazing grace. Come to him. And to experience that grace too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, merciful God, we love you because you first have loved us and given your Son in grace to graciously draw us to yourself, to know that grace, and to go out and to share this grace, this amazing love, and favor your presence with us. And so we pray as we go out today, you would encourage us in your amazing, gracious presence, and as we receive the Lord's Supper now, Lord, that you would empower us in it, confirm to our hearts your promises, Lord, through us confound and convict the world, bring people to Jesus, we pray, not just here in this church, but across, Lord, our region here and across the world today, we ask this all in his name, and all of God's people say, amen.